Welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I'm a contralto. Joining me is Danny, the soprano. Mezzo or mezzo? And Liz, who is going to- Uh, why do you have me listed as sacrificial alto? Don't worry about it. Mm. Our book this month is Masquerade, a tale of music, misery, and raunchy recipes. Because I am quite the fan of musicals myself, I was hoping for exactly what I got. Paper faces on parade. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, this is when I actually looked at the description of the book because I had to buy this one. And so I was excited that we were going to get to see the witches again. I had to use the audiobook for a solid two-thirds of, of it, only it wasn't like, it, it was an old cassette audiobook, so like the, the recording had like, end, side nine. I'm like, oh god. <laughs> Flashbacks yeah. to my childhood. Oh, no. It was an authentic experience. It was. It was true to its time. The orchestra is warming up, so let's go into the trivia aria as composed by the secret extra sister. Published in 1995 and coming in at over 85,000 words, Masquerade is the 18th Discworld novel and fifth in the Witch's Ark. It was translated into German in 1997, Dutch in 1999, and French in 2001. The 1999 audiobook, read by Nigel Planer, lasts 8 hours and 43 minutes, with a 2005 read by Tony Robinson and a bridge down to 3 hours and 16 minutes. It was definitely the 99 one that I was listening to. Masquerade was nominated for the 1996 Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel. Stephen Briggs adapted the story for stage in 1998, and his adaptation formed the basis for the 2006 stage run in the Czech theater Divadlo v. Blohe. Terry Pratchett himself attended the final performance of that show in 2011, even joining the actors on stage for the final bows. We open in Lanker where the witches Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax are meeting. Now that the junior witch Magrat has become queen, they're down to two members, which isn't enough for a proper coven. Nanny resolves to recruit a new girl, and remembers Agnes Knit. For those who missed out on Lords and Ladies, Agnes was one of several wannabe witches tempted by the power of elves, but ultimately scared straight by Granny. Liz, I recall you mentioning that you wished she had gotten more time in that book. What do you think of her in this one? Yeah, I was really excited to see that she was getting to make another appearance because it very much felt like her story didn't necessarily end with the end of Lords and Ladies. Uh, I definitely think she starts to kind of disappear in the second half of the book, uh, but I'm still glad she was there in the first place. Yeah, you make a good point there. I, I do agree with her little, her disappearing act about midway through but it did i'm glad that at least it did come back to her at the end and she she carried the plot rather nicely as opposed to uh previous books that we've covered where our protagonists were flat nanny pays a visit to the knit residence and learns that agnes has left lanker to pursue a career as a singer in Ankh morpork's opera house the opera has recently come under the management of Mr. Seldom Bucket, former cheesemonger, and together with the musical director Mr. Salzella, he's auditioning several new singers. They're hesitant about hiring Agnes, because they think that, not to mince words, she's too fat. But she impresses them by revealing that, like Ima Sumac and Freddie Mercury, she has a vocal range of yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a line mentioned somewhere in the beginning of the book where I think it's Granny Weatherwax ponders that magic can kind of go two ways. It can go into magic or it can go into music. And it seems Agnes kind of picked up on that second one there. I didn't recall her saying that it was specifically just magic or music. I thought it was more just like it can come out all sorts of ways, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was that. Yeah, it's been a a minute since i read the beginning uh so i might be a little fuzzy on the details there so i am not entirely sure i think it was it can the power can express itself a multitude of ways but whether it goes into magic or into music it can't cross streams 
Bards would disagree. Agnes gets hired as a singer, as does Christine, a more conventionally attractive young lady with zero musical talent, but whose father loaned Mr. Bucket the money to buy the opera. Soon enough, Christine and Agnes are set up in adjoining rooms in the attic, and they get to know each other better. It would not be a Phantom of the Opera-styled spin-off without a Christine. Although I wasn't expecting her to be uh, the way she was. She's a different character archetype. I kind of thought Christine was going to end up playing a bigger part necessarily than she did. It kind of seems like she's not exactly this, but she's like akin to the sexy lamp character. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, it's like she's just there in the background and to be pretty and to like Agnes to not like her. And I'm kind of bummed that they didn't like really explore that like Christine maybe has more nuance to her. Maybe she really likes being that way and she's not just like some ditzy pretty girl. It felt to me like that was her entire purpose was to be like light and airy and if she had been in Lords of La- Lords and Ladies she would be immediately doomed. But if she is a parody of the sexy lamp character, which for those who are unfamiliar with is basically can you replace this char- female character with a sexy lamp? If yes, rewrite her. And if she's a parody of that character, say it with me now, satire demands clarity of purpose and to be distinguishable from the thing it is satirizing. Yeah, when when she came on stage, I was like, oh, great, she can, you know, she seems like a sweet young lady. I hope she and Agnes can be friends. And then immediately it just kind of, oh. The text was, it, it was not very hard to, the text was very clear. Yeah. Back in Lanker, Granny Weatherwax is in a state of melancholy. She snaps out of it soon when she receives mail addressed to the Lanker Witch and discovers that Nanny Og has written a cookbook. Although that word might be more accurate if you replaced the second O with a C. <laughs> they don't go in, there's no explicit details but it's uh, made very clear that the cookbook is more of a uh like a a jaunt through nanny's escapades of her youth recipes for disaster as nanny guiltily explains what she wrote grenin does some math and realizes that the publisher has shortchanged nanny for her book to the tune of about three thousand dollars which in Discworld's medieval fantasy economy is probably around a million. So, to get Nanny her money, and not at all to convince Agnes to come back and join their coven, the two witches take the coach down to Ankh Morpork. And the narration reveals that, in fact, this had been Nanny Og's plan, a discreet way to get Granny Weatherwax out of the house, and on to another adventure. So would it be fair to say that this story develops Nanny Og's character a lot more than previous books? Yeah. Yeah, she definitely had a more active role this time around. She was a bit more comedy relief in previous installations in the Witches series. There was only the two of them. They didn't have that third to play off of, so she was forced in some ways to take action. And I think her differences compared to Granny really started to shine here, and I think the book explicitly acknowledges that. Nanny is really good about getting to know people, and I think that's one of her strengths as a witch and as a person. And I think this is a major part of the theme that runs throughout this story of the false persona and adopted identity, right? Because Nanny is as intelligent as Granny and like as powerful as Mm -hmm. her as well, but doesn't show it the same way and Mm -hmm. very much uses this whole personality of just like being very friendly, presenting herself as a little bit more inept than she actually is as a way to not quite trick Granny into doing what's best for her, her being Granny, but to give Granny the excuse to do the right thing. And I think it really starts to show, like, why they are a good pair together. It's because they have the, like, strengths that the other person lacks. Back in Ankh-Morpork, it seems that the opera's been invaded by a ghost. Mr. Salzella explains to Mr. Bucket that the entire industry is full of superstition, And in this company, the ghost is a focal point for a lot of it. He also explains the company's dire finances as money being secondary to the artistry, 
which drives Mr. Bucket into a penny-pinching frenzy. Now, that conversation is interrupted by the arrival of Walter Plinge. Walter is the son of one of the staff members, Mrs. Plinge. Basically, he's grown up in the opera house and becomes sort of an odd job man. He also suffers from an unspecified mental disorder that has left him awkward and bumbling, but good-natured and helpful. That was a point in the audiobook where I had a hard time listening to it because uh, Mr. Planer, I believe it was, adopted kind of a, a bumbling tone for him as well. You're kind of like stereotypical deep voice, like slow speech pattern, which was a little hard to listen to, but I had the copy of the book on my phone too, so that kind of made it a little better, but it, it wasn't the best choice, I think, even for 99. Other than that, though, I I did like him. I liked him a lot. Yeah, Walter seems like really good natured. He seems like he'd be like a really kind and nice person to see on like a daily basis if you were going to be working like in a place like the Opera House. So it's a little frustrating to see him be the like source of so much like vitriol as he is. I got more pity than vitriol, which is almost worse sometimes. Yeah, it's, some of it just seems, like, really kind of mean-spirited, I guess. It definitely seems to be, like, in the minority, but there were some moments where I was just like, ah, I wish I could do something. Well, what did they say? That they would send him out to fetch a bag of nail holes? Yeah, yeah. So I, th- I, I think the biggest shortcomings of this one in particular do revolve around Walter. Because he's so integral to the story itself, it kind of... I don't want to say it balances, because in doing so it falls into a few different cliches that aren't so savory, but that doesn't mean I didn't enjoy him as a character. Like, he seemed really just a sweet individual who got a lot worse than he deserved. Speaking of sweet individuals, late that night, Christine hears sounds and begs Agnes to switch rooms with her. When Agnes does, she hears a mysterious voice coming from behind the mirror offering lessons in music, and promising to make her a star. Agnes knows that this offer is intended for Christine, but accepts anyway, partly out of curiosity, but also because she wants that stardom. I guess I enjoy the, like, flip-flop that Agnes only is, like, part of this, like, interaction, getting to hear the ghosts speak, just because Christine, like, chickened out of the, like, mystery in front of her, which... If it was Christine's story, she wouldn't have, but because it's Agnes's story, she just ends up there out of an event not necessarily within her control. The next morning, Mr. Bucket gets a note from the ghost requesting that Christine be the leading lady in the opera's next production. He and Mr. Salzella resolve to pull a singing in the rain and have Christine perform while Agnes does the actual singing. Agnes reluctantly agrees. Meanwhile, the staff rat catcher, Mr. Pounder, was talking about finding something in one of the cellars. But soon enough, he is discovered dead, murdered, by the ghost. Mr. Pounder gets a death scene, but specifically one with the death of rats, as he is reincarnated into a rodent. It's possible that this is a reference to the 1989 film adaptation directed by Dwight Little, which features a rat catcher as the villain. Uh, This could also be a reference to the play The Mousetrap, which holds the record for the longest-running West End show, although the connection is largely in name. Otherwise, this is just kind of a weird digression from the musical theater theme. And an awesome cameo for the death of rats. Yeah. (laughs) Out on the road from Lanker, Nanny Og's foul and foul-tempered cat, Grebo, ensures that the witches soon have the coach all to themselves, with the exception of a very large gentleman who spends most of the trip asleep. He wakes up when Nanny offers him some lunch, and gives them tickets to the opera as thanks, telling them that they have made a friend of Henry Slug. Which is odd, because when they arrive in Northmore Park, people seem convinced that his name is Enrico Basilica. It soon comes to light that this is his stage name, but it has grown into a full persona, and Henry Slug is trapped in the role. Again, with the theme of uh, adopting fake identities. This is what happens when you let someone you are not become who your life is. 
I have wonder if Mr. Basilica was meant to be a a comparison to what Agnes could have become in this book. Almost assuredly. Yeah, trapped in a theater role that doesn't fit her at all. Whether it fits her or not, it's something that would be a net negative because it's inauthentic, right? Mm-hmm. Agnes continues to impersonate Christine for the ghost as she tries to find out who he really is. Her investigation leads her to Walter, but shortly thereafter she sees him and the ghost in too quick succession for them to be the same person. She also runs into Andre, the organist, but he seems too friendly to worry about. You suppose Andre's name is a reference to Andrew Lloyd Webber? I don't know, because we never found out his last name, so it... it couldn't have been a complete pun i think without it but it very well might have been yeah i think it's a like a definite possibility at least maybe it was one of those things that got set up in the an earlier draft and then just was cut by the time it was actually sent to print so as granny weatherwax and nanny og contrive to get nanny her royalties they spend a night at the opera which you know decent album i believe that was the debut for bohemian rhapsody so you know oh i'm sorry i'll read that again (laughs) Uh, They spend a night at the opera. (laughs) They see Christine on the stage, but recognize Agnes as the singer, and resolve to do some meddling. In true witchy fashion. And once they have the $3,000, they meddle by giving Granny a full, lavish makeover so that she can pose as a member of the nobility and ingratiate herself with the opera management. I'm kind of glad that they picked Granny to become one Lady Esmeralda because nobody else would have done a better job. I know she's she can be so intimidating that it's like, ah, yes, you were definitely of noble birth. Uh-huh, I'm not going to doubt this at all. Uh, I think Nanny's interactions with the staff of the Opera House get to really show where her strengths are. It's where we get to see, like, she gets to know people and, like, know their deepest truths and helps resolve their problems regardless of what they are. And if that means, uh, like, just lending a shoulder to cry on or, like, uh, giving some ointment to resolve some physical ailment, then Nanny's that person and she's really, really good at it. It fits their dynamic really well that Nanny is the people person, so she fits in well with the getting what information they need from the staff and then granny has her own method of of learning what she needs to know that meshes in with the high society i'm going to judge you from a distance and figure out how much money you have by what you're wearing like etc etc she just does it by talking in her own way her question throughout the book of what would you take If your house was on fire, what would be the first thing you'd take from it? As somebody who really enjoys psychology on the side, that was a very good addition. Eventually, through promises to donate lots of Nanny's money, Granny secures herself a seat in the special box reserved for the ghost, bringing Grebo as her plus one. We didn't talk about it much in Witches Abroad. The witches briefly turned Grebo into a human, and now he can occasionally take that form whenever the need arises. Devilish debonair Grebo. That's not an alliteration, but he strikes again. I very much imagine him like in the movie of the Witches series where Grebo turns into a person. I very much see him as like Jason Momoa. Oh. Ooh. So that's like my mental image whenever he comes up. I was getting more like oddly enough Captain Hook vibes, but like any of the <laughs> any of the live action remakes of Peter Pan, but like Captain Hook as he sees himself. <laughs> That's certainly a description. I'm not sure I grok it, but I respect it. <laughs> like mostly, I think the, the 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 feature that I'm taking from that is like long, greasy, wavy, curly hair, and kind of a and kind of a I'm gonna be a bad guy just because I can and. You know, there's nothing you can do about it, only I'm not going to do it in the way you think. And what did you think of the character? Very cat- that he, uh, Pratchett did a pretty good job nailing the cat-like aspects of that. I find Grebo, he very much is in the story to serve, like, a very specific purpose when he pops up. And it's to be the, like, handsome distraction is kind of what it seems like. He's there to serve a very specific task. He's to- be Granny's date, and to chase after the ghost once he makes his appearance. And chase after him Grebo does. 
along the balcony, up to the roof, where Granny Weatherwax is waiting and unmasks him. A mob forms to pursue the ghost, so Granny gives the mask to Grebo and orders the human-shaped cat to lead them on a chase through the streets of Ankh-Morpork. Meanwhile, Nanny and Walter go to Walter's secret hideout down in the opera building's cellar. Since Walter has spent his entire life in the opera house, he's become deeply connected to the music and shows. Although not in a particularly magical way, he just cares a lot about them. And it's revealed that he, slash the ghost, have spent years composing new musicals. The reference to Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats is about as subtle as a... About as subtle as Cats itself. <laughs> yeah. I, I did like the other references, like the one about this guy named Les who's always really sad. <laughs> seven dwarves and seven other dwarves. Uh, there was Guys and Trolls, which is Guys and Dolls. Hubside Story. I actually completely missed Hubside <laughs> Story. That's fantastic. <laughs> and of course, he wrote one, basically just a self-insert fanfic. A ghost who has a secret cave below an opera house and writes music and stuff. <laughs> hey, I bet that one could become pretty popular. Mm-hmm. Perhaps. <laughs> Back on the streets, Gribo is cornered and the mob begins to beat him, but he reverts to his cat form and slips away unnoticed. Which version of that play slash like, adaptations of the play was that the ending for? I'm not certain. It's been a while. So, rushing to the Opera House, Granny finds Agnes, and together they investigate the manager's office. While Granny is looking through the accounts, the two of them are discovered by Andre, who reveals himself to be an undercover police officer, here investigating the series of accidents that have been happening for months, if not years. I think there's some really nice moments in about this area of the book where it really starts to show Agnes's growing like witchy sense where she can like logic through something and understand something that may not be immediately obvious, which Granny and Nanny both like are demonstrated to have explicitly. And then I think this scene explicitly, uh, I think this scene shows where there's a difference between where Agnes is as a witch and where Granny Weatherwax is as a witch who disappears almost literally into the background although she kind of denies that actually oh i forgot to mention walter's the ghost like that isn't especially subtle it gets revealed about half around the halfway point i'd say they all but state it and then try to misdirect you by saying oh well he can't be because of this yeah but then mm -hmm. then you see walter like put on the mask and become the ghost it's clear that there's more of a psychological transformation than a physical one mm -hmm. just in case that wasn't clear to anybody because like it mentions that him him growing several inches taller but it's probably just the result of like posture and everything although you know it's a fantasy world so it could be magic so andre knows walter didn't commit the murders and he had been suspicious of mr salzella but then he saw him and the ghost at the same time but then granny weatherwax points out what if more than one ghost you know as you do Nanny Og, having found a massive stash of money in the cellars, returns backstage and confronts Mr. Salzella, but he escaped. Agnes, Andre, and Granny realize there's only one way he could be hiding. On stage, in costume. As Enrico Basilica takes the stage for the climactic duet, our heroes all rush on there and begin unmasking the actors. With the show in shambles, Mr. Bucket is practically reduced to tears. So much so that he barely registers what it means when a concussed Henry Slug emerges from his dressing room. That was pretty funny. Mm -hmm. I had to read it aloud the whole part about Nanny being a ballerina. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Something about a, a instead of, you know, gracefully shimmering and gliding across the stage, her, her boots were more like a tap dancer trying not to fall into a sink. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, man. I can't remember exactly who says it, but I know that at one point when they're all on stage trying to unmask everybody, one of our uh, group of heroes says to uh, one of the actors on stage that they're doing the final scene now and so that they all need to start taking their masks off. And the actor just goes, oh, okay, seems a weird choice, but sure. 
And they never tell us anything anyway. Might as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was Agnes. Yes. Maybe that was my gut thought, but I wasn't entirely sure. I do love a comedic climax. So Agnes and Andre confront Basilica, revealing him to be Mr. Salzella in disguise. But beneath the stage, Greddy Weatherwax finds Walter and returns his mask so that the ghost can have his confrontation with the man who wants to destroy his home. Mr. Salzella, armed with a real sword, takes Christine hostage. He reveals how much he hates opera, and in fact, he's been stealing money from the company for years. The ghost takes the stage to fight Mr. Salzella, but is overpowered and unmasked. Then Granny arrives through a trap door and has Agnes give Walter a headology mask, letting him fully assume his ghost persona and defeat Mr. Salzella with pure operatic style. (laughs) Salzella's whole rant at the end. Classic. Mr. Salzella's death scene is pretty funny because... Nanny keeps going, is it over yet? And Granny just is like, no, I don't think so. And Agnes is just like, but, 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 he, what, he, he's not, what? And so I was just like, he, he didn't even get hit. And it always takes people so long to die in opera. And then he kicks it. Pointing out just that Walter fights with a prop sword and stabs Salzal through the heart, but actually just like sort of tucks it into his arm like they do in opera. And... That kills him somehow because he's too lost in the style despite claiming to be above it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a nice return to the like idea that pops up a lot in the Discworld books about like how stories are these powerful things that can kind of have a life and magic of their own. Absolutely. And didn't they say something at the beginning? Like one of the reasons why Granny hates theater in general is because it's it's lies that are too close to her own method of magic. And as an aside to that, it mentioned that love and hate are two sides of the same coin. So he says he hates it, but really he just, he yeah, he's drawn to it and loves it in a different fashion, so much so that that's what became his undoing. Thematic continuity, we love to see it. With Salzella defeated and Walter a new man, the opera is nearly over. But Agnes realizes that all of the concern is being directed towards the conveniently fainted Christine, and that her talent will never be truly appreciated. Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og comfort Agnes, saying that if she's feeling angry, then she'd better let it out. So Agnes releases a magnificent scream that nearly destroys the opera house, and with that, it's over. The, the unspoken it isn't over till the fat lady sings in certain I was wondering here. if you were going to elucidate that. <laughs> yep. I didn't know if I should because like I was reading it and I was like, ah, I see. An opera and theater are not exactly like the most subtle things in and of themselves. So if it's going to happen anywhere, this feels like a good book for it to happen in. Nanny and Granny head back to Lanker. As Granny is doing some housework, Agnes comes to meet her. They talk for a while about identity and the future, and eventually Agnes agrees to join the coven. What did you think of Granny's name that she had tried to adopt at one point? Oh, what what was it again? I forgot. It had a bunch of syllables. It did. (laughs) Mine is like on the page break, so I like kind of looked at it a couple times and went, I'm not entirely sure what to do with that. Endemonidea. Certainly a name. Yeah, that's a lot of syllables. Mm-hmm. Especially for someone who's already given the name Esmeralda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like you already got a good name. You know how many goths would kill to be named Esmeralda? Oh, yeah. At least three. It's, it's a good name. <laughs> I also appreciate Granny's vulnerability, though, in like admitting that, you know, Agnes is not alone in like, wanting to change her name and be somebody else. Like, everybody goes through that is kind of what Granny's saying. I don't think we mentioned, actually, that Agnes has adopted the name Perdicia. You know what? I've been that sort of thing. In high school, I had a thing where I was wearing hats all the time. Like, we all try to carve out identities in kind of superficial ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's part of, like, growing up, I think, is just trying to figure out who you are. So sometimes you try to, like, pretend to be somebody else and in that process you learn a little bit more about yourself yeah i i wore the most boring hoodies 
throughout all middle school and high school. Just my my sort of like identity was the trying to I'm trying to lay low persona. And yeah, it's like graduation hit. And then all of a sudden, I still wear hoodies and jackets, but they're more colorful now and comfy and cuter and I'm cuter. (laughs) Yes, you're very cute. Yes, but now I act it. So that just that. Yeah. (laughs) So with the Lanker witches back up to three, that is the end of the masquerade. It's all about changing as a person and growing. So overall, what did you think? Good. I I thoroughly enjoyed this one. As as with most things, it, it there were a spot a few spots like I mentioned with the uh, audiobook that kind of took me out of it, but that didn't really detract from enjoying the story as a whole. Yeah, I really liked it. It felt like I don't know, kind of a, a campier version, or I guess it kind of feels like a campier one, like story in the Discworld like universe. It's very fun. It's very, it's got the drama of like opera and theater. It, who else here was like a musical theater drama chorus kid? I mean, not really by choice. Uh, my high school, we did like an all school annual production, and like mm. part of why I identify with Agnes a lot is that I got like passed over for roles because I didn't really have the right look. Uh, like we had one handsome guy in the school and he got a lot of good roles. Yeah, I wasn't so much involved in like the theater program. Like I was in the theater for a hot minute and like did some of the behind the scenes stuff, but the theater teacher had a vendetta against the marching band of which I was a part of. Oh, no. So I didn't commit too much mm-hmm. because I knew I didn't stand a chance at doing anything more than just like painting some scenery. I, I was in and out of it. Like I mentioned in Discord, I was in I was in my school's chorus for a total six years, four high school, two middle school. And there was too much drama to be in the drama club, but I did get a <laughs> few kind of side roles in a few things. Probably the top of my career was being a blind chauffeur. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a little bit salty that they wouldn't let me cross-dress for one for one role, but eh, it is what it is. One thing I wanted to talk about in the discussion, the summary might have made this story sound a lot more complex than it really is. Beneath the tangled layer of identities and motivations, it's pretty simple. Agnes leaves home in pursuit of her dream, finds a mystery centered around this guy with a problem, unravels the mystery, solving the problem, and returns home with a new outlook. Yes, she does kind of vanish a little bit, around the two-thirds mark, but she's still there, even though Walter becomes a very prominent, what was the term, deuteragonist? I think so. But yeah, it is pretty much her story, in a way that a lot of the books haven't been about a single person in a meaningful way. Yeah, it feels very much like kind of Agnes's like coming-of-age story and accepting her place in this world as a witch and it is kind of tragic that she doesn't get her happy ending like she doesn't get the recognition that she deserves which unfortunately is something that that happens a lot and it's it's made very clear in this series that this is not a fairy tale stories play a big role but they're always there to be twisted in some way they're always there to happen around the protagonists usually rather than to them Doubly so for the witches, Nanny Og explicitly states it that the people who make the endings don't get them. Yeah, and the last time the characters tried to insert themselves into the stories, that's when we got uh, Witches Abroad. Yeah, well, like that was a, a mark of the villain, really, is that Lilith was inserting herself into the world and forcing it to fit the narrative. Mm-hmm. And Magrat was also incredibly tempted to do the same. I'm really glad that nanny and granny encouraged agnes to just be angry and let it out once like it's kind of clear she's not gonna get the recognition she deserves because it i don't know it just feels like a really honest admission and it's like there's nothing wrong with being angry and it's healthier to be angry than to like hold it in and just like let it stew throughout agnes's whole arc you get this this whole sense of it's not fair And it really isn't, but at the same time, she, I feel like a lot of her arc was finding out what is good for her that she can be satisfied in doing, rather than saying like, okay, I can do this, so I should go do this, and then getting upset that it didn't work out. I'm not exactly a fan of how that came about, but I know that Agnes's ending for this book was 
probably the best one for her character. Probably the healthiest for her. Yeah. If she had chosen to stay at the opera, because she did really have a choice. Obviously, she didn't get the choice between being the prima donna and a witch, but she did get the choice between staying in the theater and being a witch. And, like, staying in the theater would have probably just led to her being the unrecognized voice for the rest of her career, really. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's not a life, is being relegated to just to what people can use of you. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Danny, you might have more thoughts on this front, but while I personally am no great fan of opera, I suspect that the way it's portrayed in the story might come across as reductive to those who are. The criticism that the plots don't make sense is repeated almost verbatim about three times, which got a little wearisome. Uh, the whole thing about like the pantomime, the like pageantry of the costuming not quite matching what it's supposed to be. Like, we understand this whole whole concept of the magic circle, like the entering into the realm of the story just to accept what is presented. It's not necessarily a one-to-one representation, but just evoking what is supposed to be there, giving you enough to let your imagination fill in the blanks. And I have a whole theory about how having to put in a little bit of work actually enhances the experience of receiving a story. That's why I think books have so much recognition because you have to like manually move your eye around the page and translate the words into language. Mm-hmm. And why I think games, like video games, I think have more potential f- as storytelling than movies do because they demand the interaction, like constant interaction. Mm-hmm. I have gone on this tangent mm-hmm. with many people many times. So it's a whole thing. Forgive me. But I think that ties into the like success of the opera is like that it leaves space that the audience has to fill in a little bit with imagination and asking them to put just a, a touch of work in enhances the whole experience. And I think that that's not something that is meaningfully addressed in there yeah there is definitely some substance to your theory uh, i've definitely seen it in regards to video games especially like you mentioned um but as far as opera i'm more of a musical theater person myself i do genuinely like the musical cats uh jekyll and hyde those sorts of things but i think the joke about opera being incomprehensible might have something to do with the fact that a lot of them are in other languages. And if I recall correctly, historically, there was a whole thing about opera goers having to bring along little books to read along with what's happening, to know what they're singing about and what's actually happening on stage. And that's like directly referenced in the story. We see the, from the perspective of one of the audience members in reading that book. The other Henry. I don't know if you two caught this, but apparently his mother like, is the girl that Henry Slug left behind to become a singer. Huh. Yeah. I didn't actually catch that. It's a blink and you'll miss it moment. Much like I didn't catch until I was reviewing the book for the podcast that there's a brief moment where Mr. Salzella waving the ghost's mask and saying it's Walter before Walter is like revealed to the public at large. And like that's a dead giveaway that he's actually the other ghost. Yeah, I think I missed that too. But now that I think back on it, though, it was, it was, yeah, yeah, he did say that, but it was because we already knew it that we would have skipped over that. This is an interesting little play on the audience's processing of information, right? Mm Mm-hmm. This happens a lot where just, like, very important things are, like, slipped in just so you can pretty easily pass over them. I don't know, maybe we're just bad readers, but I think it's a mark of Terry Pratchett's cleverness. For me, a lot of what happened to Agnes did kind of hit home for reasons I know we've talked about in the past, but I, I really followed her upset, especially with Granny, towards the end about how like she was making choices for herself. She wanted to go leave to join the opera and like make something of her singing because that's basically what she felt was all she had because she had this this inherent resentment about how people viewed her because all they could do was look at her and not listen to her and know her. That that anger that she had about all of that and her decision to join the witches didn't feel so right at the end. Like at the start of the book I was like, oh yeah, no, she should definitely join the witches because I remembered her from Lords and Ladies and like she has the potential. She could really be good. I think she could fit in with the other two and make it a fun trio again. Also, I really missed Magrat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but 
by the time like she was in the opera house, I was like, especially when they would talk about how opera used to be, they kept bringing that up around Agnes about how it used to be and how like she was a, a decade or so too late for her figure to really matter in the opera world that was just one a really low blow i don't think they said that to her but like yeah they said it around her and that was it was incredibly upsetting she joined up it gives you this hope almost that you know she'll be seen for the amazing singer that she is and not just a person in the chorus who's helping christine lip sync basically with all of that in mind it was a real punch to the gut when walter the ghost when he finally like put on his mask went up to her and was like yeah i'm going to keep training her yes i know you were the one i was teaching before yeah you're really good but you're not gonna go anywhere basically yeah it really hurt you felt that pain on her behalf it, it made her yelling at the end pretty cathartic yeah but at the same time it's like did it really have to go there did it did it have to go that far the point had been made throughout the whole book the, the point i think i'm trying to make is that by the time she did get home and join up with the witches it felt less like a you should do this and more of a there's no other option and like i know she'll probably be a very good witch i, I want to see her thrive so i am hoping to see more of agnes and change my feelings on this situation but the way it came about was not very fun i agree with all of your points yes also something I wanted to mention is that the discussion around Agnes's figure and everything, that's all people making assumptions about what the audience will want and accept, right? Yeah. Like, it's not the actual audience saying that at any point, projecting their own thoughts about these things onto the masses. And maybe they're correct, but you don't know that. And that really, I think, illustrates the whole thing about design by committee and just like executives and like trying to imagine what people will want rather than actually letting the art be art. I feel like it might have been a bit more palatable if they had told us a little bit more about what happened in the interim between the opera as we saw it in the book and that great and glorious past they talked about. I have a theory, actually, and I hope our listeners will forgive me for indulging a little bit of a little bit of continuity wanking. As they say, as if we haven't been referencing other books <laughs> throughout this whole episode. I think one important thing that might have happened in the interim is the events of moving pictures. Mm -hmm. Seeing glamorous people like up close like that, try maybe trying to recapture that same spirit in the opera led to a focus on appearance. It's like pure speculation. I think that's a good theory at least. Moving on. Some things I want to talk about about Walter specifically that I didn't put in the trivia section because it would have been spoilers. Walter is specifically named after the real-life pseudonym for various actors, traditionally in British theatre, whenever the credits need a name but can't put in one for the actor. American theatre traditionally uses George Spelvin the same way, while Hollywood has Alan Smithy. Appropriately enough, the Imperial College Union Concert Hall in London credits a Sir Walter Plinge as their resident ghost. And apocryphally, the real Walter Plinge was the owner of a pub where a lot of actors would get drunk after shows but there's no evidence to support that claim. The character of Walter in this story is specifically based on Frank Spencer, the comically inept protagonist of the British sitcom Some Mothers Do Evem, played by Michael Crawford, who went on to play the title character in the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. I'll give you three guesses which one, and it's not Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> I guess I appreciate that... The, I guess, exploration of the idea that sometimes masks are not physical things... Sometimes they're just what you imagine, which is part of why the whole invisible mask thing works is because Walter believes that persona. And so he can embrace it even if there isn't a physical mask. Oh, actually, something I wanted to go back to mm -hmm. on the subject of figures. Henry Slug is very fat, but people accept him. And that very much is a demonstration of the double standard for beauty in men and women, especially in performance. And it's just like... Mm -hmm. you're right but did you have to put it in fantasy yeah yeah and like okay i didn't even pick up on that they're just like oh yeah he's a large man 
oh yeah, he sings. I'm like, oh, okay, so he's a large man and he sings. It, it, but then at the same time with Agnes, it's just like, oh yeah, she's fat and she's never going to get anywhere because she's fat in opera and that's not what they want. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. girls have to be sexy. Yeah. Also, just like uh, Henry Slug and Agnes both being fat, did you two get any sort of sense of like body shaming from this? Because like Henry Slug is like very much food obsessed, which is like not great. I didn't really get that aspect of it. I'm sure it's it's definitely it's definitely one that can be picked up on. I mostly chalked up his whole food thing was because he's been so limited in his diet for so long. Yeah, and absolutely, that's a major part of it. So he's like, finally, food that I like. But then at the same I definitely see where you're coming from. Like, why did the thing that he had this whole element of his character, like, revolved around, why did it have to be food when he's a fat man? I kind of picked up on it a couple points in the story where it kind of felt like maybe, and I don't know if this is exclusive to Enrico or if it applies to both him and Agnes, where it kind of feels like them being fat is kind of a punchline, even if it never, like, really lands. So... It doesn't entirely feel like all good to me, I guess. I think the extent of the jokes being made about Agnes's about Agnes being fat is Christine like when the breakfast scene just after Agnes has her first lesson with the ghost, like she's having like mm-hmm. ham and eggs and Christine is having like a celery stick for breakfast and she makes a comment mm-hmm. that seems like perfectly sincere that Agnes can eat anything. And I was like, it feels like a punch to the gut for Agnes. But actually, I think this sort of leads into what I wanted to talk about with Christine. So we might as well jump into that if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So for me, the central question around Christine is, is she faking it? In this whole story about personas and masks and identity, she and Mr. Bucket are the only two people who don't deliberately adopt disguises of some sort. But Agnes notices how Christine seems to have a special skill for things like fainting in a glamorous manner that puts her out of harm's way without injuring or dirtying herself. Is Christine actually smarter than she looks, or is Agnes letting her jealousy cloud her judgment? Following the is she smarter, does she know she's smarter? Or does it just come naturally? Like, I think I should do this and so I will. Yeah, I was kind of hoping for some kind of like exploration of that, I guess. Because I just kind of assumed that like, yeah, Christine seems really shallow. And maybe like she kind of wants to be that way. And she's okay being that way. But she's choosing to do that. And not that she just is unconsciously, you know? Mm -hmm. I think best case scenario for Christine in this story is that she is unable to give up whatever persona she has put on because she knows she can make it in opera. And yes, like she genuinely is enamored with the stage, but at the same time, she might genuinely be putting something on because that's the only way she knows she'll get far is to be the subject of everyone's attention. Is she just following that same route and being more successful at it than somebody who's already been there for a while? And there's also a different other option is that maybe she, like Henry Slug, has adopted a role, but unlike him, she's completely lost to the role and, like, only knows this way of being. Maybe she's jealous of Agnes herself for, like, having options, but, like, doesn't feel like she has any. Her plotline and the story as a whole would have benefited from a post-climax scene where she and Agnes get a chance to talk and we get a just a, a glimmer more insight into Christine's deal. Yeah, like when, say, Agnes is leaving the theater and saying goodbye to everyone, maybe she and Christine have a little talk. But the other factor that might have a hand in is Christine faking or not is does she know that she only made it into the show because of her father, I believe,'s money? That's a good question. And again, we don't know because Christine kind of gets dropped as a sexy lamp. Mm-hmm. There's a sort of subplot that I also wanted to talk about uh, that didn't really fit into the main summary. Granny Weatherwax has a couple scenes where she does impressive feats. Early one is that she fixes a man's back problems through chiropractic. And then later on, when they're traveling to from Lanker to Ankh-Morpork, she and Nenny Og are staying at a tavern and the 
tavern owners ask her to cure their comatose son, but he is beyond medical help, so she stays up late and waiting for death to arrive and challenges him to a card game for the boy's life. And death, quote-unquote, loses. And then she does him a solid by fixing his uh, arm with more chiropractic. Like, what would be the third beat in this arc is that she catches... Salzella's blade in her hand and what seems to be that she's made herself indestructible but actually she's just delayed getting the injury until she gets home which is a cool bit of subtle witchy magic but I also kind of feel like a proper conclusion to the whole curing stuff like chiropractic bit would have been her snapping somebody's neck or like Mm -hmm. like showing somebody else how to do it something like that I, I definitely see where you're coming from because it does kind of feel like it's a kind of a weird detail to like put as much attention on it as it gets in the book. But I guess it can kind of maybe just be summed up too. It's like it's a display of how like being a witch isn't necessarily like explicitly doing magic. It's a lot of, you know, chiropractic, chiropractory and just some logic, you know? It's about using the right tools for the job, and sometimes it's magic and sometimes it's just medicine. Although chiropractic is apparently a pseudoscience and it's not like a reliable medicine thing, which I learned while doing research for this. Huh, okay. It's like, it's not like recognized in any medical school is like just what I'm saying. The more you know. It feels nice though. So part of this is that Granny grumbles about how people expect magical solutions when there are practical explanations available, like how she could have had a piece of metal in her hand to block the sword. And it's also part of the story that reality doesn't have neat and tidy conclusions the way shows do. So the fact that the chiropractic bits don't really lead to anything is itself thematically relevant, but themes shouldn't get in the way of story. And that's like one of those things I think it's like worth at least exploring when you're talking about a book because maybe it does make more sense to do it in a different way like if you were going to be writing this book or maybe any other kind of media, you know, and you never really get those answers unless you ask the question. All right. So we're coming up on the end, which means it's time for some thank yous uh, to my co-hosts for joining me on the talking, to Willow Carter for our theme music, and to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I hope you'll come check out our Discord server where you can chat with us directly. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, a Twitter, and all the episodes also go up on my YouTube channel just because it's what I had available. And, of course, if you'd like to support the show, uh, please consider contributing to our Patreon, where for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to rewards, including the show notes, previews of the edited episodes, and a chance at the Patreon patron shout-out. This month, it goes to Robin, who continues to be our small god. (laughs) Thank you, Robin. Many thanks. I hope you'll all join us next time for Feet of Clay. Danny, would you be so kind as to hit us with the favorite footnote? Distillation of alcohol was illegal in Lanker. On the other hand, King Varence had long ago given up any idea of stopping a witch doing something she wanted to do, and so merely required Nanny Og to keep her still somewhere it wasn't obvious. She thoroughly approved of the prohibition, since this gave her an unchallenged market for her own product, known wherever men fell backwards into a ditch as Suicider. Just get it, the cider. That took me a while to get, so... (laughs) (laughs) It's a good one, though. Thank you all for joining us. Until next time, the The turtle turtle moves. moves.